Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Like Charles Marlowe sailing down the Congo in Heart of Darkness, or more closely, Benjamin L. Willard navigating the rivers of Vietnam in Apocalypse Now, Rich Cohen descends into madness on the highways of Connecticut. Only the, only the neutralization of a renegade colonel isn't what drives him mad. It's peewee hockey. In Joseph Conrad's 1899 novel, the yarn is spun by the narrator on the banks of the Thames as daylight metaphorically gives way to night. For Cohen, it is behind plexiglass. The descent is broken down into months, which become chapters, chronicling a season. What starts out innocently in August 2018 becomes a character study. By April of the following year, he knows the game and himself again for the first time. The commercials will tell us we are hockey mad at the highest levels, but the real madness is more accu accurately attributed to minor hockey, where parents stake their existence on a child's chase of a dream that sometimes isn't even their own. Rich Cohen's book, Pee Wee's Confessions of a Hockey Parent, follows his, son's, his son Micah's season with the 2018-19 AA Ridgefield Bears as they crisscross the northeastern U.S. from rink to rink, and as the season pushes forward, the parental politics elevate until it sucks the parent in, even though they thought it wouldn't happen. The subject is at arm's length away from Canada. The author is from Illinois, lives in Connecticut, and the focus is entirely on the U.S. system. And so we know we aren't the only crazy ones now. Nate, you first introduced me to Rich Cohen when you gave me his book Monsters about the 1985 Chicago Bears that won the Super Bowl in 86, and I have a confession to make. You want a William Nylander jersey for your birthday? I knew it. <laughs> I didn't read it in its entirety. Well, how far did you get? The intro, but it was a very, very good intro, and I might have gotten a little further than that. And um, therefore, it's, uh, you know, just by reading that, it's it's no surprise Cohen's work has been published in The Atlantic, New Yorker, New York Times, and his multiple talents have also resulted in numerous acclaimed books, and as a role as a contributing editor at Rolling Stone, as well as a collaboration with Martin Scorsese on the HBO series Vinyl. I've got a story about that. Remind me to tell him. Nate... Like Anthony Rizzo on Cohen's 2016 World Series Cubs, you are up next for your thoughts on this book and the author, who novelist and screenwriter Richard Price called one of the greatest social and cultural historians of post-war 20th century America. Yeah, Neil, it was a call to action when news Rich Cohen had written a book about being a hockey parent came up during some uh, pre-dawn doom scrolling. You know, finding out, you know, Rich Cohen is a hockey guy is like a fastball in the wheelhouse that you know you have to try to hammer out onto Sheffield Avenue. Of course, Nate, you would use a baseball metaphor to describe a hockey book. Yeah, well, I had something in there about spin rate and weighted on base <laughs> uh, percentage before this compromise second draft. Neil. Does this tie into the analytics of William Nylander? Sorry. Yeah, but... I'm gonna get a. <laughs> I'm gonna get like a like an A like patch on that jersey, and it's gonna be like analytics. <laughs> Uh, Cohen really picks his topics based on you know themes that live in his head, you know, in his soul. Like he he's a he's a deep dive uh, guy, and it's kind of a refreshing throwback in his you know narrative nonfiction to a time when I think there was much less specialization in you know journalism. You know, maybe even if the last five years in North America have pointed up how we need to make expertise valued again. Uh, Cohen really draws in the readers. It calls to mind when I was young and I saw an explainer in the front of one of uh, Mordecai Rickler's novels that spoke to me about why his work, you know, which drew on his experiences growing up in a working-class Jewish neighborhood in Montreal, had so much sway over a kid like me who grew up, you know, out in the sticks across from a cow pasture. You know, Rick, Richler, Rickler reached that universal through the particular. He put you so deep into his world that you could see the commonality with yours. And, you know, since it takes all kinds to, you know, make, make the sports book genre what it is, the last thing that we were trying to, you know, suggest here is that everyone who writes a sports book or, you know, social history has to start out with that rooting interest. Uh, you know, like Jeff Perlman, uh, he goes where there's a great sports story, whether, you know, it's a team in Dallas or Los Angeles or an NFL legend who came from a, you know, small southern state. Now, there are days, you know, when the internet and the noise gets too much, and you want to propose, okay, everyone has to pick their eight lanes and they have to have to stay in them. You know, you know, should I really be the guy going off about this topic? Or, you know, should I be signal boosting uh, someone who knows better? 
Nate, uh, uh, are you VMing? I think I am, yeah. So thanks for uh, reeling me in. Uh, Cohen is great since the wit and level of observation in his books really just shows you how much he cared. You know, I really liked his first book, Tough Jews. You know, I enjoyed Sweet and Low, which is about, you know, how his grandfather, I think, invented artificial sweetener, but Rich's immediate family got, you know, cut out of, you know, uh, sharing in that sweet, sweet uh, sugar fortune. Uh, confession, Neil, I actually read all of Monsters before I gave it to you. Nate, I am not surprised by that. Continue. Yeah, as a native Chicagoan, you know, Cohen has also written about his lifelong love of the Chicago Cubs and their curse since he was invested to them being in that last generation of, you know, Chicago kids who grew up when there was only daytime baseball at Wrigley Field. I think Rich was born in 1968, so that would have put him in, like, the same senior class as the fictional Ferris Bueller. I love that he's, you know, pursued his passions. He has that one football book. He's got that one book about the major sports franchise that was slash is cursed to never win the biggest prize. And he's got no need to go back and, and do do a second. Um, although uh, you could check both those boxes by writing about your Minnesota Vikings. Yeah, but then I can't write that book. <laughs> uh, Pee Wee's is an American compliment to books that you know, I think express a well-founded capital F fear about the direction of youth hockey. We had the uniquely Canadian take on that from Sean Fitzgerald of The Athletic when he joined us in 2019 to discuss Before the Lights Go Out, which is a season inside a game on the brink. You know, I think our great Canadian hand ring sort of centers on, you know, youth hockey being too expensive and inaccessible to wide swaths of the population. And we wonder about, you know, what's that going to do to Canada's position as the world's number one producer of hockey talent? Uh, but Rich sort of centers it on the fact that hockey's become kind of like every childhood activity now with this arms race aspect that puts pressure on the parents to get on this hamster wheel of forking out more and more for extras to you know enhance their childhood's experience uh enjoyment may or may not enter into it and then the parents get wired into thinking doing more of something is the only way to do it you're a bad mom or dad if your child only does the thing you know four to six months out of the year but it's you know proven that early sports specialization hurts long-term athlete development uh brian burke uh, talked about that with us last fall in season four episode five and Arguably, it also hurts social development because you don't get to meet as many people with as many different interests and skills. Now, hockey might not be the worst offender out of all the youth sports. It's just a uniquely obvious offender for, you know, three main reasons. One is obviously the cost of owning skates and equipment and becoming a good skater. You know, the second is the cost of renting, you know, indoor ice as the climate crisis reduces the number of days we can skate outdoors. And the, a third is, yeah, the culture around the game. Uh, skating, rinks, and culture. You know, hockey's, you know, big hope is probably requiring less time on arena ice and uh, including, uh, you know, more more types of people or else it'll kind of get nichier and nichier like most winter sports. So that fear, I think, is at the heart of peewees, like, you know, that heart of darkness thing that you mentioned, Neil. And Cohen really places... Uh, his son's season at the crest of a shift that he kind of calls a general decline in community. Uh, as America fades as a dream, it becomes every man for himself. But hockey's not an everyone for themselves sport. It's the, you know probably the most thoroughly team sport it is. That's wh that's why we love it. And one gets the sense that Cohen really came to see hockey as an ideal that was you know apart from you know that world of selfishness and self dealing that that he criticizes. Uh, it seemed to lend itself to you know fostering community. Uh, but you can't control who wants to be part of it, right? I mean, he lays out how, you know, all the Karens and Kevins out in the suburbs are, you know, increasingly less prone to assign their outsized American ambitions to their children playing baseball, basketball, or football, even if the sports TV exposure suggests otherwise. I wrote this before it was announced the NHL is going to be back on ESPN. Uh, you know, for instance, participation in full-side football has declined over 10% in the U.S. just within the last decade. And it's not just like, you know, the blue states that are, you know, giving it up. It's down in 48 of the uh, 50 U.S. states. So, you know, people are happening on this game that seems made for their, you know, medium-sized, you know, children. You know, to quote, to paraphrase the, you know, 80s hockey young movie Youngblood. We sort of asked to ask Cohen about it, but that does seem like a theme in a book whose high point when he pulls the, you never played the game card out on, an, on one of the uh, coaches who was a, a parent. 
you know, and it's obviously the ultimate journalistic irony for a writer to, to play, pull the uh, you never played the game card, even <laughs> when he's got, you know, a valid reason to do it. So there's a lot of value for us uh, in having this perspective about youth hockey in the States. Up here in Canada, I think we only really get the only American angle we get on it. We kind of get the chest thumping. Look at how many American kids went in the first round of the NHL draft. Look at who won the World Juniors. And then we sort of, you know, come back with our trademark Canadian, you know, shut down sarcasm. Yeah, but free health care, eh? <laughs> so uh, grateful Rich Cohen can join us to talk about Pee Wee's Confessions of a hockey parent from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. And no, that's not a line for the Flyers. Um, did you, uh, do you want to share that quick thing about your Vikings masks? Or? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so my mom gave me a three-pack of Minnesota Vikings masks at Christmas. She still does stockings for us, even though her youngest child is 36 years old. And I actually found that they really worked as well as a sleep mask, like pulling them up over my eye, eyes. And I was just like, I think I'm going to wear them like this when the defense is on the field next year. Well, you know, it's funny because Rich is a big Bears fan like myself, and we might have to ask him about uh, the possibility of actually landing a, a, a bona fide quarterback in, in Russell Wilson. So um, we'll see if we get to that, uh, and we will in a second. Uh, thanks, Nate. Remember, you can purchase this book and any others that are a subject of one of our episodes by going to our website, www.sportslit.ca and uh, at some point you will see Nate's segues on there as well. So up next Rich Cohen to talk about Pee Wee's Confessions of a Hockey Parent. Well we're back on Sports Lit, and we're very excited to have Rich Cohen join us. I know Nate is a Vikings fan, so uh, you're outnumbered today, Nate. Two Bears fans, one Vikings fan. I'm used to it. <laughs> um, Rich, um, I want to ask you, uh, you know, I, I've realized that in, in the episodes, the 35 or so we've done so far, sometimes I, um, I jump past, you know, the most basic question, which I think the average listener would probably want to know. So... Uh, I'm going to give you a softball right off the top, which most people have probably asked you when they've interviewed you about any book, and that is, um, you know, what has the reaction been so far in this case to the candid exploration of peewee hockey, given, in your case, your wide breadth of what you've written over, you know, you've written about rock and roll, you've obviously written about various different sports and music and so on. So what has the reaction been to a book about peewee hockey? Well, the reaction's been... You know, very personal because it's a super personal thing and it turns out as I was hoping I just wrote about my own experience but my experience is shared by so many other people who are just hockey parents sports parents in general and um, you know I just get like a, I become like a deer I always thought you could make a million dollars if you became a psychiatrist who worked just with hockey parents <laughs> so I've kind of become that I'm sort of the counselor for hockey parents and I get a lot of stories of way worse than anything I've experienced or way crazier. And um, I don't even get the charge by the hour. <laughs> yeah, and what's sort of been the reaction? I mean, I, I think back to when I was, uh, you know, a small-town sports reporter and getting a bit uh, key piece of advice. Remember, you have to live in this town before you write, yeah. you know, when you write critically. What's well, kind of been the reaction where you live? I mean, that's just definitely something. And But I've written about my family and everything, so... I kind of have experience with it, and it's sort of always risky. The reaction that I've heard of has been great. You know, it's been covered in the local paper, the local magazine. I did an event at our local library. There were tons of people there, very supportive. Other parents that my kid played with had the same experience. Now, probably a few people aren't so happy, but I haven't heard from them. So <laughs> I would say the reaction is great, but I'm sure it's not uh, completely thorough. And also, you know, normally you talk to people at the rink, but because of the COVID, the, which, you know, is a crazy thing that never in a million years that I think that this would happen. I haven't really seen people as much. And I don't know what it's like for you guys, but the kids jump around from program to program and these teams don't stay together. It's like they're a bunch of free agents on a professional team and they go shopping for the best program. So my son doesn't play in the same organization anymore. And very few of the kids that he played with are in the same organization. They're scattered all around Connecticut. Yeah, true. And there was, a, I think, a good book uh, written up here a few years ago called Selling the Dream, uh, Ken Campbell and Jim Parcells, that described that, just like people come and go. Now, your sports books have sort of yeah. taken on the big themes, you know, the Cubs curse, uh, the 
1985 Bears and the wild heart of football. Why did you sort of see a big idea that attached to you know your son's youth hockey team? Well, I'm always interested in writing about sports because I feel like when you I'm you know just a generalist as a writer. And first of all, I want to write about things that I really feel passionate about. So the Bears, the Cubs who made me cry in 1984, and the Bears who saved my life in 1985 from the Cubs. And <laughs> um, and then I played hockey growing up, and that was a sport I knew better and cared more intensely about than any other sport. And I felt myself caring about my son's hockey in a way that I hadn't cared about anything since my own hockey. I mean, I used to feel when I played for about an hour before the game, I'd start to feel like I was going to throw up. You know, I'd get nauseous. And it, that didn't go away until the game started. And I would feel that way. I still feel that way before my own kids' games. He doesn't feel that way, but I do. And so when, you, when something actually makes you sick, you know that it's got to be a good subject. And I also felt that it was kind of the flip side of my book about the Chicago Bears, which, which was about the 85 Bears, but also about the history of the NFL, because, I mean, it was very clear that one was called Monsters, one was called Peewees, and there was some connection to that. Because the thing about kids playing, we're talking about bantams here in the United States, 12 and 13-year-olds or 11 and 12-year-olds, is that um, there's nothing more pure. You know, and these kids are playing it, if they're playing it well, they're playing it because they love it. And mostly the parents just get in the way of that, if anything. So I felt like that's the purest form of sport. And, um, and the, the moment that I knew that it was a great subject for me was a few years ago when they play a tournament here in uh, Can-Am tournament in Lake Placid, New York, where the you know Miracle on Ice team beat the Russians and then won the gold medal, uh, which was such a huge thing for American hockey. And um, they play, you know, it's like almost like a fantasy park. And the kids really believe that they're like in the Olympics. And this was when he was a little kid, and they made it to the bronze medal game. They weren't even very good, and they lost in a close game. And I'm waiting because my thoughts are mostly, I want to get on the road, man. It's like a five-hour drive. It's Sunday afternoon. It looks like it's going to snow. And they're not coming out of the locker room. And after like 45 minutes, I stick my head in there to see what's going on. And all these kids are sitting completely still dressed in their uniforms, just weeping. And I'm like, ah, it's so great to care about something so unimportant so much that it makes you cry that this is just a great subject to explore more deeply. Um, Rich, I want to ask you about um, your first experiences with hockey because it's in the book and it's very well written and it, like the whole book is it just, it's very interesting how you have the Canadian coach and he seems to be from this far off land and he kind of writes which direction you have to go by putting an X on one of your gloves I think you were left wing and yeah I, I wanted to ask you about you know uh you know the the the, the rink where the tent blew off the top I want you know, I want to ask you about your first experiences playing hockey and then and being a fan of hockey because you couldn't watch it on TV because uh, Wirt's family had blacked out blacked out the games. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the only times I saw pro players was uh, when we went to Chicago Stadium, which was like an adult portion of pro hockey. I mean, it was very intense. The Blackhawks were a very good team then, and they couldn't get past the Canadians. That was their whole problem. This was like in the mid to late 70s, but they were a team with Stan Makita and Dennis Hall and, um, you know, Keith Magnuson and, and Tony Esposito. And, uh, and for us, you know, there wasn't, there was nothing on TV. We had the three channels and the UHF. There was nothing going on in the winter. And my brother was playing hockey. My brother's five years older than me. So my parents, it was so cold where I grew up. My parents would, outside of Chicago, my parents would just drop us both at the rink to spend the entire day. <laughs> so basically I just went because there was nothing else to do. And this was a rink called the Deerfield Bubble. The bubble actually still exists. They sold it to... Uh, college in Minnesota, I think, uses that same bubble now. And um, it was so cold. And basically, I got up on skates because of my brother and his friends. And I had a lot of trouble getting going, probably because the skates were like four sizes too big, you know. And um, I couldn't get off my ankles. And my brother knew that I had this fear of the Zamboni, that I was convinced that the Zamboni, that I, that's how I was going to die. I was going to be run over by a Zamboni. And he knew the Zamboni driver, and he got him to come out and chase me with the Zamboni. <laughs> and I was so scared that I went from, like, a kid who couldn't skate to the fastest kid anybody had ever seen. And that's when I got my first nickname, is they started calling me Rocket for Maurice Richard, but just because my name is Richard and because of that crazy sight of a kid running, running as fast away as he could from the Zamboni. <laughs> and um, so for me, like, there was always a mix of hockey. Maybe that's why it made me nauseous. Was it, was, it was combined with my love of the game and my fear of death by Zamboni. <laughs> and um, 
And then, you know, it was the best way to play hockey because we would just sort of jump in. They would always be short. I'd always play with kids older than me. And, and we had this, I had this coach as a squirt named Jim Freeberg, who you mentioned who was Canadian. I found out later that he actually worked for Can-Am. And he'd come down sort of, he was trying to proselytize hockey. I mean, there just wasn't a lot of hockey being played at a very high level by kids. And, um, and you know, I tried to make this travel team. I was cut, the last kid cut the first year, and then I made it. And that was like a great lesson of persistence. And we would travel all around the upper Midwest and into Canada to find teams to play. And they played, the a rink was originally outdoors. This was in Deerfield, right by the tollway on the campus of Trinity College in Deerfield. And it was really a flat, open, cold place. So they parents pitched in and they put got this big bubble that you see over it, but it was like early in bubble technology. And my brother was playing and there was like a windstorm and the bubble was whipping back and forth and actually it ripped off, which is like, can you imagine? It's like a vision of God, like suddenly, bam, you're out, like out in the universe. And it blew away. And the parents got like a posse together and chased it because they paid $30,000 for the thing. And they caught up with it in, in Indiana, at which point it had been ripped to shreds. So then they bought this newer, better design bubble that was there for many years. But it was a really cold rink, and it was a huge home ice advantage, which is most of the team that played us, we were the Deerfield Falcons or powerhouse. They, uh, they just weren't thinking about winning. They were thinking about getting off the ice as quickly as possible because it was so cold. So the first outdoor game was not at Wrigley Field. It was it was at <laughs> no. <laughs> um, well, in my little town where I grew up, where we moved, maybe we didn't have travel hockey. We didn't play travel hockey there, but we they have an outdoor rink that's still there, you know, and in a very high level house league, which is kind of an option that doesn't exist anymore for parents, which was a great thing because a lot of parents they might be the best kid in the world, but the parents simply weren't gonna. You couldn't convince the parents to get in the car and drive four hours to play hockey when there's a rink two minutes away. I am going to... They play house league. I'm glad you brought up that house league point uh, because we want to ask you about that later. And you talked about, the, you know, just it's everything becoming so specialized that they're, you know, they're, the house league has been gutted, essentially. But I, I want to ask you just before uh, about the book. And what I thought made this a uniquely American book about hockey... Uh, is I don't think it would have been would have been able to be written in Canada. I don't think an author here would have w- been willing to put in the names and examine the the, the different things and the texts and, and present all that. I just don't think it would happen here. So I thought that that was what made this book interesting to me was that you know we usually read books here about hockey by Canadians and this was someone writing about hockey that uh, was an American entirely kind of Amer- about the American system. So. I wanted to ask you about uh, any kind of the way you presented this. Was there uh, hesitation at all? Did you have to go through legal or anything like that to get uh, these names in the book, especially when dealing with well, young, I, young players? I changed all the names and I disguised the details, and I had to do that with legal. Hmm. And um, you know what I wrote is true, and in in America because of the First Amendment, you're allowed to write pretty much anything if it's true right but i really try to focus not so much on the kids i mean other than in the games and make it really about the parents because really the kids game here is great the problem the thing where you run into some trouble sometimes is with the parents and it's parent and it's just trouble you run into everything with parents and kids because as i discovered and i know it's true about myself it's impossible to be objective about your own kid and normally that's just loving your kid and caring about your kid, and that's fine. You know, except when you're a parent coach, like a lot of them are here, what's, what, it becomes either a little bit corrupt or, the, or a conflict of interest or the appearance of a conflict of interest, which amounts to the same thing here, because people think that their kids get in the shaft, and it ends up seeming very, very important. And, um, or you have parents that, you know, I would say there's two kinds of parents. There's a kind that think their kid's never done anything wrong, and then the kinds that think the kid's never done anything right. And those are both equally the problem because as I've realized watching this is your kid is probably somewhere in the middle. And they make these cuts of these teams that are all leveled, very, very hierarchical. But the truth is most of these kids, except for the few outliers on either end, are pretty close in ability. And they don't develop gradually. They develop in jumps like physical jumps, which you really see as a parent, which is they couldn't do something and now they can. 
So the tryouts are just a snapshot that misses the bigger picture. And one thing I really missed that from when I was a kid is they basically kept our team together from age six, you know, until we went to high school. And so you felt you grew up and developed with these kids unless there was a real reason. But now, because the, the, the tryouts have become mini versions of the NFL combine where they are measuring for certain particular isolatable measurable skills, they miss kind of the big picture and they lose sort of the camaraderie of the team and, and, and they sort of, then it becomes all these different little machinations. And so that's a long way to answer your question of, yes, I had to go through legal, and, but yes, I try to change the names. Hmm. And the only name that's really the same in the book is mine and my son. <laughs> go ahead, Nate. Yeah, and you have the, uh, the phrases that earwormed into, into my brain from the book were, you know, teach to the test and blame Malcolm G- yeah. Gladwell. And, you know, to what extent was this about showing, <laughs> using youth hockey as a window into, you know, just how priorities have, you know, sort of got out of whack with the way the parents approach the approach all, you know, childhood activities? Well, I'm 52 years old. I'm very much a millennial. I mean, not a millennial, a Generation X, not a millennial, Generation X person. And I really think like a lot of the systems set up maybe 10 years before me, they had good intentions, but they had these horrible unintended side effects. And I lived in this, I lived, I grew up outside of Chicago and then I was living in New York for a long time. And then I moved to Connecticut and it was like this big change had happened. And I really focused on Malcolm Gladwell because I kept hearing him be quoted. And you realize the reason, one of the reasons why Malcolm Gladwell, Canadian, I believe, his book was such a big hit, in addition to being a really great writer and good insights and everything, he seemed to offer a kind of code or a kind of map for how to make your kid a great athlete. And people followed this, and there was two things. One is he said that, you know, great NHL players tend to be born January, February, because that's when the cutoff is, and they're the oldest and the biggest so they're the most developed, so they get the most attention. And immediately when I read that, I thought, oh, my God, that's true. That's got to be right. And that's why I wasn't a better hockey player because I was born at the end of the summer. So it gave me immediate feeling of it wasn't my fault, you know. Um, but then you start – and then I started – and I looked up Gretzky and Messier. They were born like January, February. I don't remember exactly. Then I started looking up other players, and they were born like Bobby Hall. I don't remember. It was born like in September. Like, it didn't make sense. It wasn't right. And then I thought, like, when I was a kid, the players I played with weren't it – was, I wasn't the oldest. I was always the youngest. And that, that's what I thought made me better, which was trying to find a way to contribute to games where I was three years younger than some of those kids. And I know that Gretzky played with players that were much older than him. So that didn't make sense. And then you get the 10,000 hours thing, which is he said – you have to do anything to master it. You have to do it for 10,000 hours. But he doesn't tell, practice for 10,000 hours. I don't know how 10,000 hours long that is, but I can get out of the calculator. It seems like a lot of time. And the thing that you realize is, one, you can do something for 10,000 hours and still suck at it, <laughs> which he never mentions. And then, two, you know, the fact is if you're doing something 10,000 hours, you don't know you're practicing. So it's like when we were kids, we would go in the weekend, they froze, you know, it's like Canada probably, they froze a giant park in our town, big enough to have like six or seven games, pickup hockey games going on at one time. And if we didn't have organized hockey, we'd be on the ice for 12 hours until our parents dragged us off. So that was 12 hours of practice. We never thought about it that way. We were playing. And then we'd come home, we'd go down to the basement and take slap shots or whatever, play floor hockey. That's probably another four hours, you know? But now it's like focused on the practicing, the practicing and the, un, the, the, the play because they're trying to amass those 10,000 hours. And then you get in a situation where the hockey season for my son, it begins at the end of August and it goes until the end of April. That's like an NHL season. Then they have spring league and then go, kids go to summer camp, which means you can't play any other sports. Now I make my kid take you know, basically six weeks to two months off in the summer because I think that the biggest talent you can have as a hockey player as a kid is loving the game. I mean, it doesn't really matter if you're a great player, but you hate to go because you won't go. You'll find ways not to go and find a way to quit. And you'll end up fighting with your mother or father a lot before you do it. So I always found that there were kids that played all year long. We'd go away for the summer. My son would play baseball. We'd play, I have him play a lot of golf and swimming and all that. And then um, we come back, like the kids that stayed there all year, they're like the guy that you see, you left work at 6 o'clock and you came in at 10 the next morning and he'd been there all night and looked like crap. And that kid got all this extra time, but he was just 
you know, completely worn out, done with hockey. The season hasn't even started, and he just wants to go home and go to sleep. And I always thought the kids that took time off actually got a jump. They actually did better. So it's kind of a counterintuitive, and I think that a lot of people were following this book, and the book led them astray. Yeah, and what kind of conversa- like conversations have, are there among parents about, you know, what, maybe trying to understand what's better for, you know, long-term, you know, physical and, and social development? Because I've heard, you know, people who are experts say, you know, we're losing physical literacy because children are just doing one sport all the time, and that you yeah. know, causes problems. Well, I'm, I'm not a, I know it's bad for their bodies because you want to, you want to like, give certain muscles. And anybody who played hockey knows if you take a month off and skate, there's muscles you're unaware of that you're using. I mean, you can't walk for a couple of days. <laughs> and um, especially when you get to be an adult league player like myself. And uh, any uh, and and so it's good to just use a different set of muscles and physical skills. So like my son really likes baseball. I noticed he got, and it's a little thing, but he's a wing and he's got really good at tipping pucks into the net. And I know it's because of bunt practice at baseball. You know, it was a completely different skill that he had learned about hand-eye coordination and using his stick. And, and I know that playing golf helps him shoot and everything. And, and, it, and, and it gives him a different way of looking at things. And, um, and I think that you just, you, you so, like you said, I didn't really get into it when you first said it, but the teaching for the test, that's where it is like the hockey for me became a microcosm for the rest of society because I have an older son who's, you know, trying to get into college and they have the SAT and you end up studying just to get a good grade on that test, regardless of what you know about the world or what you're getting from school. And it became the same thing with hockey, which is a lot of hockey, a lot of sports, you can't really measure who's a good player and who isn't. I mean, it's certainly before you've seen them play for 20 or 30 games, you can't. So a lot of these kids, because they're jumping around, they show up, no one's seen them play, nobody knows a lot about them. So they can only measure the skills that are easy to measure. You know, so basically they measure their inside edge, the radius of their turn, their outside edge, how precise their stop is, how hard their shot is. And so you wind up with the players that are maybe the most skilled players, but none of them are very good hockey players now. And and I see the same thing in the NFL combine and you see the same thing with hockey, which is you got to wait until you play 10 games in a row and you're at a five game tournament and it's the fourth game and you're losing half the kids have quit. Half the kids are still going as hard as they can. There's no test for that that I know of, except watching them. Those kids are your hockey players, and you'll miss them in the tryout. I, I say this, I was especially aware of this as a Bears fan, okay, because over the years, the NFL Combine became so important, and there's a whole history to the NFL Combine. But it's part of, like, giving a number to everything and putting everything on an algorithm and giving a value to everything. But the fact is, before the NFL Combine was a big deal, I think it was brand new, and a lot of players didn't go. The Bears used their first-round draft pick to pick a quarterback, my favorite quarterback, Jim McMahon, who also played for the Vikings. McMahon is about six feet tall, maybe six one. He has a mediocre arm. He was always out of shape and overweight. He never amassed huge totals, but all he ever did was win football games. He won 30 games in a row that he started and was all intangible. Him getting away to get into the end zone, to winning, to finding a way to score points when the absolute crunch time came. And, and now, with the combine, the Bears go out and they draft Mitchell Trubisky, who's 6'6", has a, you know, can throw end zone to end zone, is a great athlete, has the best vertical jump, can run faster than anybody. He's just not a very good football player. And you see that same thing replicated in every sport and on the ice rink. It's all the intangibles. And that's why we thought the coaches should just pick the teams and leave all the rest out of it. In terms of analytics, um, you know, the, hockey was probably one of the, la- the last of the four major North American sports to kind of jump in on it. And it, you know, the the debate I'd say, you know, is, is raging full scale. Not not really the debate. I think everyone knows that they belong. But you know, people argue over analytics all the time. I want to know how analytics are seeping into uh, you know minor hockey, as we'd call it. Um, or at your son's level? Well, what I found, and now I had two kids who played hockey, and I found that they don't have very thorough analytics. They don't keep very good statistics. Now, the analytics are important in the tryout, but it's all kept very, very hush-hush. And, like, our organization has these outside evaluators come in for the tryouts. And you know these outside evaluators came in because the parents complained 
to the coaches and the parents who pick these teams, and they want somebody that can offer them a little bit of plausible deniability. So when somebody's pissed off that their kid didn't make the team, they could say, hey, it wasn't me, it was those guys. Where are they? I don't know. They went back to wherever outside analytics guys go. you know. And they would be scattered th- during the tryout throughout the seats, the bleachers, in sort of like air marshals. Like you didn't know who they were, but you can kind of tell they didn't belong. They were like in all dark suits, keeping a lot of notes. And with youth players, you know, there's not that much to measure. So they'd measure, um, you know, like I said, the edges and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, it was, and and they would use that to often back up decisions that they already made. And that's maybe the analytics could be even used in some cases in a better way. Because I don't know if you ever saw the movie Miracle, you know, the Kurt Russell movie about the Olympic team, but. Herb Brooks, according to that movie, shows up for the Olympic tryouts, and he's already got his team. You know, and there's and so there's like should be 15 spots on that team or something, but in fact there's probably just three spots that are really actually available. So you're playing so, and that's what it's like in these tryouts when you show up at some of these teams. There's just a spot or two. So your kid, I always say to my son, like you don't have to be as good as these guys. You have to be better. I mean, you have to give them a, a reason to change your, their plan around. And as far as in games, uh, the analytics, they don't really keep very good analytics because it's usually apparent with a, a notebook. They keep goals and assists and maybe secondary assists. And then sometimes they try to keep the plus minus, which is probably the most important. And uh, they often just use it as an excuse to sort of push a kid back that they don't like to say, look at his plus minus, where, I don't know, plus minus in our league has a lot to do with who else you're on the ice with, too. So, um huh. I just think that this, it's like you become what you measure, you know. So you play to the thing, but the statistics are just a tool where people see what they want to see. So if you think your kid's great, your kid's great. And it doesn't really matter what the analytics say to a lot of parents. It's like my father has this thing saying believing is seeing, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking to get offended, you will get offended. And if you're looking to think your kid's great, your kid will be great in your eyes. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the statistics always come up against that. Now, Canada, I imagine when they get a little bit older, it becomes more important. The analytics maybe are a little more thorough and a little better, but the analytics are just another tool. I want to ask that you about uh, yeah. I want I want to ask you about travel uh, and travel is a major factor in minor hockey and a very important theme in this book. And um, what did you learn or what was reinforced about what you knew about the demographics and infrastructure? Uh, and so on in Connecticut as you crisscross the state uh, for this ho- uh, for for your son's hockey team. Well, first of all, hockey when I grew up and now is not incredibly racial di- racially diverse. Okay, and that's just the way it is. And maybe that'll change, and that should change, and it's changing slowly. But economically, it's incredibly diverse, and it's and it's very expensive. You know. So my book is just following one season, one team. But within that one team, you have people that are hedge fund guys that are like multi, multi, multi millionaires. And then, you know, people who are working construction and they're scraping together the money so their kid can play. So that it, that's another thing that puts pressure on the parents, which is if this is all the money you have or if you're working two jobs so your kid can play this elite hockey and you're spending all your time driving four hours for practice to get to the right program for your kid and then you go and travel to a tournament and you realize your kid isn't playing all the you know and then you get kind of like am i on the wrong is my kid on the wrong team is this good for my kid is this bad for my kid you know that's some of helicopter parenting too so what's interesting about my town is we're kind of a, a hinge town like to the south of us are the very very rich towns of uh fairfield county connecticut which are some of the richest towns in the united states like Greenwich, Connecticut, New Canaan, Connecticut, Darien, Connecticut. These are the teams we play. And to the, to the, on the other side of us are much more blue-collar towns like Bridgeport, Connecticut, Danbury. Um, so, And I always thought we were in the middle. We're, we draw from both sides. So I thought we were at a disadvantage playing the very rich towns because they have a level of coaching and development that we can't afford. And to the, and to the other teams are like a little bit rougher and grittier, so they're tough in a way that our kids aren't. So we're kind of in the middle, but what's interesting about Connecticut is, and a good reason to play youth hockey in Connecticut, is it's small, so you can basically cross the whole state without, like right this year my son's playing in New York, and New York's huge. So from where we live, if you're going to play in Buffalo, that's an eight-hour drive. That's a flight. 
you know. But Connecticut, within four hours, three hours, you can cross a whole state. And you realize that Connecticut is kind of a microcosm because it's got these very rich towns, these very nice towns, and it's got these old, you know, sort of mill towns, like New England towns, that have sort of been hollowed out by what's happened to the economy. So you get every sort of team and every sort of kid, and that part of it's kind of fascinating. And that's why, like with my kid, I always insist that we don't just go in and go out, that we have to stop and eat or do something in one of these places so you get a sense of where you are, you know. And I always try to, people think I'm crazy, but I always like to go sit with the other team's parents just to try to get that vibe kind of and try to see it through Mm -hmm. their eyes because, you know, these games are very important to people and I I like to understand what's, what's making them so nuts. Yeah, in, in the book, too, I believe you, you, you write about going, you know, under this bridge and then emerging into, uh, or through this bridge and emerging in a, in a new kind of uh, part of the state, and, 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 and I thought that was really interesting. I think it was Northford versus yeah. Danbury, I'm not, if, if that's what Yeah, yeah, and you go to, it's funny, because all these towns, is like New Haven, North Haven, West Haven, and they're all, and people would always say, beware the Haven. You know, and I was at a game once and a parent was just screaming at my son, calling him names, you know, without any idea of who he was, that I, that I was his father. And I turned to say something and another parent grabbed me and said, leave it alone. It's the Haven. And it was kind of like the end of the movie Chinatown where it's like, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Like what goes on in the Havens? We don't want to know about just leave it alone. Leave it alone. Um, uh, in terms of costs, which you just talked about, what, you know, what, What's the differential from, from uh, I'm not factoring in inflation, obviously, but just in terms of when you played in the 70s in Deerfield and then how your son came to play, like, what are the, you know, how insane have the costs uh, become in hockey? Well, I don't know for sure because I didn't care about costs my parents were paying when I was a kid, but I think that we're talking about for a good travel hockey program, at the most, it was probably like around $1,000. And the house league program was like 150 bucks. And the house league was really, really good. And then as far as equipment goes, the equipment was much cheaper. I mean, it wasn't as good. I mean, a stick was what, 20 bucks or something, you know? Mm-hmm. The sticks are outrageously expensive now. That's a big shock to me. And, um, and, and I had a brother played and, and older friends who played. So I always was, uh, got hand-me-down equipment. And, um, you know, we, I would play spring league hockey, but then it ended. So it just wasn't, and, and also when we would go traveling, we had a team bus or van and we would be, we didn't stay in hotels. The other teams we played, the kids on that team's families would host us. So that was another reason that you didn't get crazy with these other kids because you stayed with their parents in their houses and we all knew each other. And that was a great way to see different parts of the country. And, um, and now there's, you know, so in addition to now, it's like, we're talking like maybe depending on the program between five and thirty thousand dollars. I mean that's not us, but probably like talking around ten thousand dollars on average for a good thing. And then the skates and sticks and sticks are like some people pay three hundred dollars for sticks. I'm sure you guys know this. I don't get that my kid get those sticks. He doesn't need them and he doesn't have a good enough shot for him anyway. <laughs> um, and uh, and the good the great thing about the skates here is you can buy new skates and remold them. I mean there is there are ways to sort of not pay as much but my brother's kids played triple a hockey which is the highest level here and he'd be getting on a plane every weekend you know so add to that planes hotels i mean it gets to be like you know forty fifty thousand dollars or as we say here one semester at an american college and you know it and i mean that that sometimes is the end goal right to get your kid into college maybe on a scholarship um the yeah i guess what i was thinking of is just percentage like your parents percentage of their income that went to you playing hockey versus the percentage of your income that goes to your son playing hockey it must just be staggering in in terms of a difference Uh, here's how i know because i didn't because i i went to summer camp not all for but for four years i think when i was a kid and they would my parents would bitch so much about how much that camp cost. I think it was like $1,200. So hockey must have been much less than that because <laughs> uh, they never said a word about it, you know? And, and they would never, they, like if I, something bad happened, they'd go, I spent $1,200 to send you to that camp, you know? Right. You better have had a good time. Right. So, like, you know, so um, what are we spending $1,200, you know? So it wasn't a, so, and I do, I really the house league was, and I played house league too. So I played on the travel team and the house league team, and that was just like I remember that because I remember having to give him a check. It was like a hundred bucks, and that was for a lot of games and a lot of ice time. 
So ultimately, and we had far fewer rinks too. There's right. so many rinks now. Um, ultimately, what I'm leading to is, I mean, uh, you know, hockey seems it is now pretty much an elitist endeavor. So, uh, what have we lost in filtering out these kind of you know working class roots? And I thought of this when you know Walter Gretzky passed away. I think it was last week. You know the the mythology and 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 what's true. You know he's a telephone. Uh, I think it was a lineman for Bell. You know, very blue collar, and that goes for a lot of the great hockey players that we probably grew up watching and you grew up watching. But uh, I don't know if that's really possible now unless that parent has a full-scale, absolutely full-scale, uh, I guess, mission to uh, to make their kid a hockey player. Um, and I think that ties into gutting the house leagues too, right? I mean, how, how does, you know, yeah. how, how does uh, hockey... Well, I will... Go ahead. I will. I mean, I've, I think that to some degree this has happened in not just hockey. Okay, so I mean, it's, so I'll give you an example. Like, well, I wrote the book about the Bears. The guy who put the Bears defense together was Buddy Ryan, and who was the defensive coordinator for the Chicago Bears. And he had a thing that the tougher the childhood, the better the player. <laughs> and he said he used to go into the like dormitory where they stayed during, you know, they had a huge roster and they were cutting players. And he would watch the players shave and see which ones turned off the water or brushed their teeth between, you know, using it and which ones let the faucet run. And he said he wanted the guys who turned off the water because that means they grew up with well water and they were poorer and they had a tougher childhood, so they were going to be better football players. And when I would play with Canadians, because I did play with Canadians a lot uh, when I was a kid and when I was older, I was always amazed. I never thought of Canada's hockey being elite like that. because the Canadians that I met who played came from all different kinds of backgrounds. They were not rich kids, you know. Mm-hmm. They were just middle class, lower middle class, working class, whatever. They were everybody. And and I think in America especially, because one of our main hockey centers was in New England, where I now live, and it's so – the really good hockey ends up pulling you into boarding school. And the boarding schools are, you know, the most elite. That's where, like, you know, George Bush goes to boarding school. And those are the kids. John Kerry was a very good boarding school hockey player, I think. So, and um, and then up to the Ivy League. And uh, even where I grew up in the Midwest, it wasn't as a, it wasn't as elite like that. And a big part of that was these house leagues where. So my older son stopped playing travel hockey, and he still wanted to play. I said, "Oh, go play." house league there's a house league here and i thought it was just going to be the same as when i grew up they didn't even have enough kids to get two teams together and they had such a wild disparity of talent so they had some kids who were decent like my son decent and they had some kids who couldn't even skate so how can you play a hockey game you know so basically when i grew up like i said there were there were parents one who didn't have the money two who thought it was stupid to draw to travel to a rink when you had a rink locally and um and or parents that had like 10 kids okay so whatever one got the other got so they couldn't afford to have 10 kids playing travel hockey so they play the house league which is already for the 10 kids it's like a thousand bucks and so a lot of the best players best athletes played hockey and they were playing i mean played house league and you'd only find out when you get to high school say and you'd all get on the same ice, and you're like, where, the, where did this kid come from? Oh, he's been playing house league. And so that was a really good way to develop players, and that was parent-coached, and the parents were former hockey players who wanted to just teach kids how to play hockey. Plus, we had all this time, like I said, playing outdoors just on our own, and, it just, and we played floor hockey in the gym, and we used to go play hockey in the gym behind the school. They froze the field. So all that's gone now. And now, I think because there's so much less time to play, that the practices are also seeing you have so little ice time that the, 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 the premium, the, the cost of the ice goes up and uh, the ice time, all the time has to be used to develop these certain particular skills. And one of the reasons my son switched teams is because he's on a team now where the coach believes that the drills should basically be disguised as competition because he just wants to compete. Instead of just being these kind of road drills where you're just practicing skills, if you could put two kids racing against each other doing those drills, he'll get into it because it becomes a game, you know. So I do think that it's become a more elite. And here's the other thing, which is, you know, it's a, bi- it's a big business with a lot of money. And the one way that you make 
money in any business in America and in the world and is you basically create stress, even if unintentionally. And then you create, you sell something to alleviate the stress. So basically our program has four teams, four levels, AA, A, A1, B. That's a hugely hierarchical system. And then some kids don't make anything. Okay, so basically there's, for every parent at every level, there's stress. Is their kid gonna drop back? Is their kid gonna move on? It's just like the same stress as college. So you alleviate that stress by selling private lessons. And everyone's in competition. We're talking about not taking time off and not playing other sports. It's like you're not looking at your kids sometimes. You're looking at what the other parent is doing. And if another parent is having their kids skate an extra three hours a week in a private lesson that's $150 an hour, you feel like you have to do it for your kid to keep up. And it becomes like an arms race that just gets more and more and more expensive. And it leaves less room for the player who's just developing at a slightly different rate with a different economic structure. And now uh, you're giving me a lot to think about, Rich. Uh, I grew up with well water, but my birthday is also January 4th, so I think those two things cancel each other out. It explains why I was the worst hockey player of, uh, in a family of, of three children. Uh, my sister was a goalie. My brother was a forward, so they, they, they can argue over who was better. And we're hoping you would offer uh, a reading. Uh, this, to me, was the book's like emotional crescendo. Uh, confrontation with uh, Coach Hendricks about your son's <laughs> playing time. Um, yeah, can you remind me of the page? Yeah, it's, it's a, uh, you know, sort of mid-178. starts with the words, uh, oh, yeah. you know, tell me what you want him to do. Yeah, okay. I would say one thing first, which is because it's funny you talk about yourself and your siblings. Because I, my older brother taught me to play and played with his friends, I had to learn how to, I became a good hockey player because I had to learn how to get around bigger kids. And I had to learn how to not let anybody touch me because they would kill me. And now here in the United States, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, they don't start checking until bantam. So it's not even that they don't have the checking skills, they don't have the survival skills. You know what I mean? They don't know how to avoid getting hit, which we just learned without even realizing we learned. And um, so in this little passage I'm reading, I'm feeling it's, like, it doesn't matter if a guy, you could be a great coach and never played hockey. I'm not being a snob about it. I'd rather have a guy or a woman who was better with kids and had never played hockey than was a great hockey player who couldn't talk to kids. So, all right, so this is my confrontation with one of the parent coaches. Um, he was uh, saying that my kid wasn't listening to his instructions and, and he was giving directions and he was always out of position and wasn't, enacting these very complicated plays he was sending. At this point, my son's 11 years old. Um, finally, I said, tell me what you want him to do, I said, and I'll make sure he does it. Coach Hendricks grunted, said, fine. Got, got out a rub-off marker and drew on the plexiglass. You're at the rink. It was more of the same, dots and dashes, lines going every which way. I could make no sense of it. Then I suddenly understood and said, you can play hockey growing up. It was like an epiphany. It made sense of everything. No one who'd played the game as a kid would diagram a play this way. It was the sort of drawing done by a person who'd watched a lot of hockey on ESPN. Some of the other odd things Coach Hendricks had said made sense now too. Like when he told Barry to never slow down in the neutral zone because once you slow down, it's hard to get going. That makes no sense to a 12-year-old, but a lot of sense to a 50-something man who's just taken up adult hockey or the time he argued against scheduling two games in one day because it's just too damn hard on the body. I must have touched a sensitive spot because he went wild when I said that. So what if I didn't play, he shouted. You think you're better than me because you played when you were a kid? I'm the one giving my time. I'm the one out there with the kids. I'm the one doing the schedule and scouting the competition and figuring out the algorithm. What are you doing? Nothing sitting on your ass in the stands bitching like every other know-nothing hockey parent. I spent hours. I was certified by USA Hockey. Were you certified? I sat through seminars. Did you sit through seminars? I learned about good team hockey. Did you learn about good team hockey? And now what? You want me to quit? Fine, I'll quit. I'll walk away right now. Bobby had gotten quiet. People were staring. I spoke in a whisper. That's not what I meant. 
I've been caught off guard by his anger. I'd rather have a coach who never played but can teach than an NHL all-star who can't talk to kids, I said. It's just that watching you draw that play, I realized you hadn't played when you were a kid. And it explains a lot. You can't remember what it was like to be 11 years old out there. A grown-up draws a bunch of arrows and lines, and your head swims, so you just skate away. He stared at me. Don't you see what's happening, I went on? You draw these plays for the kids. They don't understand them but are afraid to tell you. So they pretend to understand and do their best, but it's wrong. And you get mad because you think they're not listening. They are listening. They just don't get it. I don't get it, I said, pointing at the play, which is already fading. And I've been involved with hockey my entire life. <laughs> nail, nail on the head. And I was always the type of kid who, you know, got at the end of the line for drills so I could watch someone else, you know, yeah. you know mess it up, mess it up first. It's, I always thought that's my biggest. When I watch my son do drills now, I think the main reason I couldn't play today is I don't have a good enough memory. They're like doing a hundred different things. I'm like, I don't even know how they know what to do. <laughs> yeah, like, like roll over, touch their head, skate to the edge, go backwards. It's like, you know. And we just had had to do. Can't that remember work. my phone number sometimes. Yeah, and and obviously you did know about good team hockey from you know you know playing playing it as a kid and the the instru- instruction instruction you had. How much does that when you think of that when I read that section of the book, I sort of connected it to you know how you were describing you know, the the growth of youth hockey in the states and maybe having all these parents who who a generation ago would have put their sons in football or baseball and are yeah. now putting them in well, hockey, actually, but they don't know hockey. this guy who didn't play hockey was a football guy. And a lot of people are because, you know, there's been so much fear of football and concussions and, and people don't want their kids playing football anymore, but they still want to have them involved in a sport that's physically rigorous and a contact sport. So hockey sort of fits the bill. And basketball is good, but basketball so much depends on, on height. So... Now, in football, plays are like a big deal. Like, that's football. Plays. And stop and start and stop and start. Hockey is a game of flow. You know, and plays don't really matter that much. And the fact is that, I mean, a few basic templates, like positioning and going up and down the ice, but once that, it's flow. And it's opportunities opening up and and people making plays and playing together. And you know, spending times on plays, especially for little kids, if you watch an NHL game, it's not all that different. I mean, it's different physically in speed, but it's the same game you're going to see if you go watch Bantams play. They're, they're doing the same basic thing. And they have the same basic goal, which is to create these situations where suddenly the clouds part and there's a shot at the goalie, you know. So uh, to me, this guy was like the equivalent of somebody who there's a bunch of 10-year-olds learning to play football, and he's like, let's start with the flea flicker. <laughs> I mean, you can play your whole entire life all the way up into the NHL and never learn one of those plays. You know, so um, it was funny because I look at one point I said to him, look, you're, every one of your plays, which depends on winning the faceoff cleanly, which we've never done. <laughs> you know, so we've got this whole play, he's telling them this whole play, and they go out and they lose the faceoff, and now they don't know what to do because they had this play, you know. Right. Um, so. It's like a Rube Goldberg kind of thing. Uh, Rich, uh, we are uh, closing in on the top of the hour, so there's a lot I, I wanted to ask you. And I, thankfully, I, we got to cover some of this in our clubhouse uh, conversation about like how you uh, coached against Mark Messier and why uh, Leo Moriarty likes uh, Zach Hyman of all hockey players. Um, but we'll save that uh, for people who read the book. Um, um, well, I guess they'll. Well, you can quickly say why uh, why one of the players on this team liked uh, uh, Zach Hyman because it relates to the nature of our podcast, which is a love of well, books. Well, because Zach Hyman wrote these kids' books, yeah. one about a kid who plays hockey who has a stutter. Yeah. And, uh, and um, some relative of his, knowing he's a hockey fan, gave him this book. So this like, allowed him to see that you could be a hockey player and be a writer and loved his stories. And then when you watch Zach Hyman, you realize he's, he's such a gritty player and he fights so hard that gives you something to do when you're not necessarily, you know, um, Connor McDavid, but you can find a role just digging along the boards and 
and getting it going. He's been uh, red hot lately, Zach Hyman, for the Leafs. Um, so yeah. I, I want to, I guess I'll close by asking you about some of your other work. Um, and um, before I get into, uh, uh, you know, what you did uh, and what you are doing with, uh, you know, uh, for example, creating the, help creating the HBO series Vinyl, I, I actually forgot to tell you this on the Clubhouse chat the other day. Uh, you know, one night I was looking for a bar, uh, I'm going to say four years ago, and I went to the Horseshoe Tavern, pretty famous bar on Queen Street in uh, Toronto. And I noticed the signage looked a little different, but I walked right in and I kind of sat by the bar, stood by the bar, I always stand, and I looked around and everything seemed to be branded and then everything said vinyl. And then I realized that I'd somehow got into the vinyl uh, launch party uh, and as I tried to buy a drink and then it was an open bar and that was that gave me away the bouncer then came up to me and knew I didn't belong there so he let me finish my drink but for a moment I was at the uh, I was hobnobbing at the uh, vinyl launch party in Toronto so how That's did so funny. <laughs> how, uh, that was uh, I tried to that was the longest it's the longest it took me to drink a beer I can tell you I tried to milk it for everything it was worth because the bouncer uh-huh. said hey you get to drink this, and then you got to go. Yeah, nursed it like you're in grad school. There you go. Um, so, yeah, uh, I just wanted to know how you became involved with that and, and some of the other things you're working on going forward now because you have such a wide breadth of, uh, of knowledge and of experience in this industry. Well, that, so that goes way back, which is I started out early when I was in my early 20s working at Rolling Stone magazine, and I was sent to Toronto to spend the summer sort of hanging out with the Rolling Stones who were rehearsing for what would be the Voodoo Lounge tour. And I became friendly with Mick Jagger. And I ended up traveling around the road when they went out on tour that summer. I saw them rehearse in a middle school in suburban Toronto, it was like amazing. And um, just me and them in this gym and they're playing all their songs. And, uh, and then right around the same time or a little later, I'd written a book about Jewish gangsters in Brooklyn it was my father's bedtime stories for me in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. And, uh, and Martin Scorsese had somehow, someone gave him the book and he loved the book. And he sort of reached out to me. And then, um, and then Jagger and Scorsese had always wanted to make a movie together. And the idea was it was going to be like casino in the movie business. And they both knew me as right. And just at the time for Rolling Stone, I'd written a business story about Warner Brothers music. So, they called me in and I thought about it and I pitched him an idea and I ended up kind of becoming one of this threesome at the time. And later on, Terrence Winter was added. And so basically we worked on it for so long and it was like a three hour movie that by the time it was ready to be made, TV was the thing. So they sort of adapted the three hour movie into a series with the, basically the, what I had written becoming the pilot of the series. And, um, it's funny, you make you told your story about the vinyl party. You remind me of this. I instantly thought of this another hockey story, which was when I first moved to Connecticut, I started playing adult hockey on Sunday nights and they all these guys went out to get a beer afterwards. I didn't know them really, at this bar in our town and I went to meet him for a beer afterwards and I saw two of them and I sat down and they looked so uncomfortable, these two guys. And I'm like, Hey, how's it going guys? And they're like, Good And they like wouldn't make eye contact with me, it was all weird. And I was like, what the hell? Did I do something bad on the ice? Did I flash somebody? And another guy I know came in. He called me and goes, hey, Rich, those guys aren't with us. They didn't play hockey. And there were just two random guys sitting at the bar that I had sat down with and started to talk to. <laughs> so be very careful. Yeah, absolutely. When you walk into the wrong bar. Exactly, depending <laughs> on where you are, for sure. Um, so, And what are you up to next? Uh, or what's going on right now, uh, now that this book is out? Well, actually, I'm trying to do more TV stuff. I wrote this. Uh, there was this horrible, probable murder where I live. Uh, you can look it up. This woman named Jennifer Dulos who dropped her kids off. At the, her son was a hockey hockey kid, and she dropped her kids off. She's in the middle of a bad divorce uh, at the New Canaan Day School in Connecticut, and she was never seen again. Mm. And um, I wrote a, like a six-part episodic narrative, true crime narrative about what happened to her. Uh, in something called Airmail, which is a magazine of Graydon Carter, Canadian, mm-hmm. and um, trying to turn that into a t- TV show. So that's mostly what I've been working on. Well, Rich, we'd like to thank you uh, for your time today, and you can just uh, tell people where they can uh, buy this book. I believe you have a website where they can purchase it. Uh, AuthorRichCohen.com, which link you to every other place. And there's all, always just Amazon or your local. I, I, it's in Canada; it has its own 
you know, different publisher, but it's Amazon's probably the easiest. Well, thanks again, Rich. Uh, best of luck uh, going forward with all your projects, and we really enjoyed uh, reading this book, Pee Wee's Confessions of a yeah, Hockey Yeah, I'm, I'm glad this uh, book got me to meet you guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks Thank again. you so much.